Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank all my listeners for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and psychic and author of Who Do Justice Magic, Ms. Aida, binaural production engineer Damian Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, and monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. If you are interested in contributing to this show, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find everything you need there. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is Paul Anthony Wallace, and he is the author of several books. I believe his most recent is Scars of Eden. Thanks for coming on today. G'day, Gary. Thanks so much for having me on your show. Fantastic. It's a pleasure having you again. One of my favorite topics. Um, you want to give uh, my listeners a little overview of what the topic is on your books? Certainly. Well, I'm known for writing and broadcasting on the topic of paleo contact. And that is the theory that in our deep past, our ancestors had contact with ET civilizations. And how I got into that uh, surprises a lot of people because my background is 33 years in church ministry. Mm-hmm. And in that context, I was involved as a, a church doctor, as a theological educator. I trained pastors in the interpretation of ancient texts, the Bible in particular. And it was my work in that area that got me down this rabbit hole into the topic of ET contact and it happened for me really through the work of Bible translation. So that's what got me into the whole thing. It's interesting. Um, I have you be like the third person on my show who got started um, on this topic the same way you have, which is like they were originally members of the clergy and then um, started doing research, started questioning things, and got into it. Uh, I think one of them is... Um, Jim Willis, and the other is um, Michael Carter. They also sort of went down the same road that you have. Um, so, so what is it? Like, what things in the scriptures or some of the books that aren't even in the Bible that, that led you to consider extraterrestrials as actually being a valid option to what the book is saying? Well, I found myself challenged um, just a little bit more than a decade ago when the Roman Catholic Church held a colloquium. Now, this was under Pope Benedict XVI, the most conservative pope in my lifetime. (laughs) And I should say, I'm not a Roman Catholic believer, and I don't follow everything the pope says, but it caught my eye when the most conservative pope in my lifetime convened the Pontifical Academy of Sciences to hold what was effectively a symposium to discuss the theological implications of contact with other civilizations. And my jaw dropped when I heard that. I thought, where on earth does that come from? Because it was only 400 years ago, the church was still burning people at the stake for just suggesting there might be intelligent life in the cosmos, let alone us being in contact with them, let alone them being our extended family, which is the language which then emerged from his spokespeople following this symposium. And the the gauntlet was thrown down, really, 
by a senior theologian by the name of Guy Consolmagno. Now, he is a senior astronomer for the Vatican, and he met the press and said, look, we shouldn't be surprised to have contact with other civilizations because they are mentioned in the Bible, he said. They're in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Now, when he said that, I thought, what? I, how did I miss that? Because I've been, for 15 years, teaching people how to interpret the Bible. I've been preaching on it for three decades. Could I really have missed something as glaring as aliens in the Bible? And it really was a challenge for believers uh, around the world, and really anyone paying attention to what he was saying, to go back and review stories that we think we know what they're about, and consider the possibility that there might be an E.T. or two lurking around in those stories. So... I did that work when I finally had a moment, and in my book Escaping from Eden, I talk about a uh, an ultimate frisbee injury taking me out and giving me some convalescence time, which is a bit of a code for some times when the universe has just given me some time where I could decide what to do, and I decided I wanted to research this. It was in the back of my mind there may be an ET or two in the Bible, but I was blown away by what I found when I went back to the texts with the tools that I had been teaching to my students for 15 years, each time you come across a text, you ask, where did this come from? Who wrote it? What's the source? How is it different from the source? And why was it changed? That's called source analysis. And then form analysis or form criticism. What kind of literature is this? Is it poetry? Is it history? Is it history with interpretation? Is it a teaching document? And then the fundamental question, what do the words mean? And when I applied those questions, I found some key words that were really the portals to another world. And one of the key words is the word Elohim, which is the Bible's earliest word that gets used for God. Drill down into that and you discover it's a masculine plural form word. It's, it's plural entities. The root meaning is the powerful ones. And it takes plural verbs, plural attributives, demonstrates plural behaviors, sometimes plural moralities. The Elohim have arguments with each other. They conflict with each other. Thousands of human beings are slaughtered in the conflict between the Elohim. Bit by bit, you join the dots and you think, maybe if it moves like a duck and uh, quacks like a duck and swims like a duck, what if it is a duck? What if this really is a plural? And so I sat down, went through the stories of origins in the Bible, reading Elohim with the root meaning, and a totally different set of stories emerges. The change isn't random. What happens is those stories that we're told as God's stories suddenly flip around, and you realize you're reading the summary form of the Babylonian, Sumerian, Arcadian, and Assyrian stories. And those are not God's stories. Those are stories about our ancestors bumping up against visitors from off planet interesting i never so is, that was that was like uh, what's uh, it's the red pill isn't it in, in the matrix uh, it, it know, is. his whole world changes and that was it was like that for me i always thought eliohim just meant was a word for god or creator well that's right and I, I a lot of people who respond from the faith world that's often their first thought and they come back and say hold on isn't this just like a plural word for god and then you just have to go through the elohim text and so show look here it's translated as god here it's translated as demon here it's false god 
Here it's landlords. It's the same word. How do you think the translators are making that call? And then when you realize that there are these Elohim storylines of wars between the Elohim, Elohim slaughtering human beings, Elohim with very anti-human agendas, it becomes clear very quickly Elohim is not simply a word for God. It's far more interesting. And it really does mean the powerful ones. And those stories really do run in parallel with the stories of the sky people. And once you've seen the parallel and realize that the Bible is dependent on those older stories from out of Mesopotamia, you can't go back to seeing it the other way. And a lot of the moral problems that people have with God's behavior in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament resolve when you realize actually those are not God's stories. That's something awful that some other kind of entity did. And I believe that for centuries we've been blaming God or excusing God for the most monstrous things in the stories of the Hebrew canon because we've misunderstood and we're blaming him for things that were done by extraterrestrial colonizers in our deep past. Wow. So um, so that brings it, uh, the... Um, the Christian Bible or Catholic Bible, King Jesus, whatever you want to call it, there's a whole bunch of different versions out there, into sort of agreement with things like the Sumerian texts, the Vedic texts, and even things like the Hopi mythologies. Exactly. That's exactly right, Gary. When we translate those stories the way we do as God's stories, it's as if the Bible is standing as a contradiction of all the other wisdom of the mm -hmm. world, as if it's saying, forget what every other culture has ever said. This is the true story of where we all came from. Make these translation uh, switches, and I shouldn't say switches, because it's really drilling down to the root meanings. And the stories change, and they run in parallel. You mentioned the Hopi stories, a lot of Native American stories, Mesoamerican stories from the uh, Mayan traditions, mm -hmm. African stories, Zulu stories, uh, Edo stories from out of Nigeria, uh, Mami Water stories from out of Ghana. Listen to the Norse legends, the Greek legends. They all repeat with the same notes, the Filipino creation narrative. They all tell a very similar story and the parallels are very curious and often very detailed as they map out a less familiar story of who human beings are, where we've come from, who our rulers were in the distant past, and what the roots really are of civilization on planet Earth. Are there any clues um, in any of these texts or in the Bible where we could find evidence, like actual physical evidence, to prove it? How do you mean physical evidence? Um, a craft, for instance. Well, that's a great question because people say, surely if there were ETs scudding around the planet a few thousand years ago, we'd be bumping up against their discarded technology, wouldn't we? And we don't seem to be doing that. We do bump up a lot of technology that we can't explain. So we go back thousands of years, 10,000 years ago, let's say, and we find uh, civil engineering feats that we just can't explain because they've come from out of nowhere. I mean, we're scarcely acknowledging that there, that there was a human civilization 10,000 years ago. The, the, the story of civilization usually begins with the Mesopotamian civilization, uh, beginning with Sumeria, which is about 7,000 years ago. 
But there they suddenly emerged with uh, cities with streetscapes, civil engineering, sanitation, uh, mathematics, legal systems, banking. And we're thinking, where on earth did that come from? Right. So that leap forward has always caught people's attention. And yet we do have megalithic remains that are far, far older than that. And we find things and think, how on earth did they cut that rock that straight? What was the power tool they used to drill that hole? So we come across those things. But I think one thing we have to bear in mind is the possibility that the stories of beginnings that we have in world mythology and ancestral narratives refer to visitations far further back in the history of the planet than we've ever imagined. If there was a civilization before everything we know, I mean, if there was a civilization, let's say, before the dinosaurs, how would we possibly know that? We might know if neighbors came and told us a bit about our own history, but we're not going to fall across their technology because it would be powdered within a couple of millimeters of, of sediment by this stage. And as you read the ancient stories, including in the Bible, the message is there that on a periodic basis, the planet Earth suffers some kind of cataclysm that takes civilization on Earth back to a virtual zero, and it has to reset. Plato, the Greek philosopher, believed this. He said this happened every few thousand years mm -hmm. as a consequence of impacts from objects in space. This is him two and a half thousand years ago. So the possibility is that everything we know is just the most recent iteration of civilization on Earth, and that some of our ancient stories refer not to our civilization, but to civilizations before. So when we read the Sumerian, Babylonian, Arcadian, and Assyrian stories, they're not talking about, you know, 6,000 years ago, we were sharing the planet with ETs. They're saying, here are our stories of beginnings. And in the beginning, there were these other entities. So the time frame, I think, is much, much older than we think it is for intelligent life on Earth. All right. One of the, also the, the things that is mentioned in these mythologies is like what you said about the reset. You know, and I, as far as I know, it's like some of them theorize like we're on a fourth epoch that has happened, you know, as far as we know, four times that's been documented. Um, that's right. So if you go to the Vedas, the, mm -hmm. there is that notion there, absolutely. So, so how old do you think civilization is on Earth? How far back do you think we're actually going? You think we're going, like, I think up to, as of now, I think they're saying that, that humans or hominids, like, such as, like, you know, the Homo erectus has existed for something like, I don't know what the most recent one is, like 300,000 years, I think. Um, but there's also people out there, like Michael Cremo and stuff, who will say it goes back millions of years. Well, that's right. If we're looking at things we can find, you know, keeping it physical, and look for the roots of human society, you can look for different things. So if you look for uh, cities with streetscapes, etc., then you will get back to the uh, Sumerians. If you look for megalithic structures, you'll get back to 10,000 years ago, uh, which is the timeline for the oceans rising and covering some of the megalithic remains that we found around the world off the coasts of Malta, Cuba, Yonaguni Jima, 
We've got cities down there that would have been above sea level no more recently than 10,000 years ago. But it goes further back than that. If you look for evidence of the intelligent use of fire, I think the most recent date you're going to come to is something like 140,000 years ago. But then if you go to the southern cone of Africa, you will find evidences of prehistoric mining that takes us back to around 200,000 years ago. Now, scientists mm. say that our ancestors were here at that time, yes. people who looked pretty much like you and me, but they didn't know how to farm. They didn't know how to build buildings. They were just about smart enough to work in somebody else's mine. And that's something physical that we do find in Southern Africa, along with this huge grid of stone circles that transgresses boundaries of a number of Southern African countries that we have no idea what they are, but they have very unusual physical properties that suggest that you're looking at a technology that we don't yet understand. So just looking at physical things on the planet, you're getting to 200,000 years ago. And that blows out of the water probably everything you and I learned at school, Gary, about us and where we came from, because <laughs> yeah. the timeline we were taught was very, very recent indeed. Now we've got to go a bit further back. And in that time frame between 200,000 years ago and now, the timeline of uh, human evolution has changed radically. It used to be just us, you know, this single line of evolution right. of uh, yeah, ape-like man species. getting clever and clever. And now there's a whole array, isn't there? Yeah. We, we now realize that we, we actually shared the civilized world with the Neanderthals, that you and I have Denisovan blood in us, that we had very short neighbors in Indonesia, Homo floresiensis, and we've got the Dragon Man in China, and the whole picture has been confused. Back in the day when I was at school, we were looking for the missing link. Well, the we've monkey. now got about half, <laughs> half a dozen missing links to try and explain these massive leaps as these new hominins appeared on the planet. Interesting. Um, you mentioned the, consent the, the, the the rings, and that is something that's also always has comes up, comes up a lot on my podcast because I've talked a lot about Atlantis, which was supposedly concentric rings, um, the Eye of Africa, Concentric rings. Um, here in the United States, there's a place called Port Poverty, concentric rings. Then you got places like Stonehenge, Gobekli Tepe. They all sort of have this similar circle, spiral design. What do you think the meaning is behind that? Well, that's a great question. There are many details that recur from continent to continent that suggest we might be looking at a global pot of information, and maybe a global culture. Uh, according to conventional wisdom, these cultures had no contact with each other, and yet we find very similar emblems carved on these sites around the world, and you're right, very similar designs. I am coming to the view that there was a global civilization on the planet in times past, not just pockets of developed cultures here and there, the work of Anselm Pirambla in um, the Andes is finding evidence that all the ancient cultures that we know about in uh, Central and South Africa, uh, South America, were all connected. And you find the evidences 
in the hard copy of megalithic remains and in the details of their ancestral stories. You can find it also in soft copy when you listen to the secrets of ancient cultures that get passed through ceremony and initiation. And you find that what the Native American cultures pass on when they initiate their new elders and guardians, very similar mm -hmm. to what the Nangas and Sangomas pass on to their initiates in Southern Africa. And I now take the view that when we talk about civilization, a previous civilization, we mean a previous global civilization. And one of the little clues to this in the Bible comes in Genesis 11 that says there was a time when everybody on the planet spoke the same language. So there's your global uh, culture. Before Babel. And, and at the end of that story, you've got this mysterious episode, which people think of as the Tower of Babel and the confusion of languages. And the sort of Mickey Mouse version of that story that, that people sort of remember is, oh, yes, that's where all the languages came from. Wasn't it there we all learned to speak Spanish and Italian and French and German and uh, Mandarin and so on and so forth? Read the story again and you'll realize that prior to the destruction of that civilization, people could understand each other. After what happened, people could no longer understand each other. We're looking at a loss of language, not the development of language. We're it's looking at human beings losing the capacity to communicate with each other and it's done through a technological attack babel again go to the root meanings it's the gateway of the powerful ones what happens at it go to the sumerian story from that gateway observers are dispatched from the planet's surface to their stations in the stars what we'd call space stations put the stories together it's very clear you're looking at some kind of a stargate technology or a launchpad technology but i think it was a stargate somewhere in what would be modern day iraq and it was destroyed it's got nothing to do with building a building that had breached you know building code or zoning regulations and we've gone too many stories high it was advanced technology and those who came plural beings once again said we can't have a spacefaring civilization on this planet and they bombed it back not only into pre-spacefaring not only into no longer a global civilization but into a condition where we've effectively lost the power of speech and in the bible the story stops at that point the stories of beginning stop at the tower of babel and then the story takes up in the world we all know a chapter later in a totally different era so those are some of the clues in the Bible that we're looking at a previous global technological civilization that was destroyed before anything you and I know about. Hmm. So you think it was the technology that allowed everybody to have that universal language rather than some form of telepathy? Well, if we take at face value the, the Bible story, it was that everybody lived in the same place, it says, and uh, they spoke the same language. It was a single culture. Mm -hmm. However, the plot thickens because you go to the first verse of that story and it says that the land of the earth had a single lip. Now, the word lip does not mean language. It means coastline. That's talking about a time when all the continents were joined up. 
is one of two references in the Bible to what we would call Pangea. Right. And the other reference is a verse that says it was in the generation of Peleg that the lands divided. Now, if that's the right reading of those verses, and again, it's the root meaning of the words, then you are looking at the story of a civilization on Earth from before the dinosaurs, something we really wouldn't know about unless somebody told us, because all the evidence for that would be ground to powder by now in sedimentary layers. We wouldn't know if it weren't for that story. But that's how it unfolds there. So we're looking at not our civilization, but a previous terrestrial civilization. Hmm. Yeah, we are going back pretty far if we're going back to Pangaea. That's pretty... <laughs> Sure. Yeah, that's right. So that's not us. That's not Homo sapiens sapiens. That's someone else's story that's got layered into our stories of beginnings. And there are plenty of examples like that from around the world of stories that just don't fit with anything we know about the timeline for life on Earth or for Homo sapiens. This is another civilization we're being told about. Mm -hmm. One of the other things that you mentioned earlier was the mines. Um, are you, I mean, I'm sure that you're um, familiar with the work of Zachariah Stitchin and his story about them creating humans to mine gold. Um, do you think that's what happened? Well, it's funny. I, when I started writing Escaping from Eden, I had never heard of Zachariah Stitchin. And I'd uh, virtually got to the end of putting that book together when I started uh, stumbling across his name and thinking, oh, Blow, someone else has come up with some of these ideas. I'm not the first, after all. And I thought, well, should I just stop what I'm doing, read up everything I can find on Zechariah Sitchin, and then go back to what I'm doing? And I thought, no, I won't do that, because I don't want to write a he said, she said kind of book. What I'm going to do is I'm going to come back to him later. I'm going to follow my own logic on the data that is before me, and then if the conclusions that I reach overlap in any way with what he or anyone else has said, then the overlap makes that interesting for the reader. It's not interesting for me to comment on what someone else has said. True. Let me follow the data. And if there's an overlap, mm -hmm. well, then that's interesting. What I did find that, and there's, there is overlap definitely between what I say and what Zechariah Sitchin says. And I take my hat off to Zechariah Sitchin because... He is the one who really confronted the general public with the implications of the Sumerian, Babylonian, Arcadian, and Assyrian stories. We had no idea what those stories were until the 1830s when the translation key was found on the Behistun inscription by Henry Rawlinson for the East India Tea Company. And then all of a sudden these bizarre stories emerge. Academics knew about them. Anyone who trained for the ministry knew about them, but the general public didn't know. It was Zechariah Sitchin who let the public know that there are these stories about paleo contact in the Mesopotamian narratives. And um, I take my hat off to him for that. The mining, I came across really through a little hint in the Bible. We talked about the physical evidence mm -hmm. in Southern Africa, but there's a curious couple of verses in Genesis which talks about Eden, which we think of as a paradise, and it turns out to be, you no, know, that's an enclosed zone where the powerful ones are doing their experiments to generate the human race and do their genetic modifications. 
just outside Eden, we're told, in that region are some convenient mineral deposits, uh, gold and other mineral deposits. Well, why on earth would Adam and Eve living in their idyll need to know where the key mineral deposits were? And then there's this little verse that says that the Elohim, the powerful ones, put the humans to work. Then you do raise an eyebrow. I don't necessarily find the story of human beings as a slave species mining for gold in the Mesopotamian stories. I, I haven't reached that conclusion from those texts. But to be fair to Zechariah, he didn't only look there. He did look at correlations with other world narratives. And if I go to the Popol Vuh, which is a, an account of the Mayan story of origins, when it talks about the engineering of humanity, uh, it's very unapologetic. It says that those who colonized us, the, um, the feathered serpent uh, and those of that species, they sat down and asked each other, is it possible to create avatars for ourselves to do the heavy labor and bring us our food. And that's their story of where human beings came from. And it's a story that glorifies absolutely nobody. Why would you invent that story? It doesn't glorify your rulers, your royal family, or human beings, or the gods. It's a pretty cynical-sounding story. But that's their explanation. However, Within that story, there are evidences that we are far more than that, and that they were quite surprised by the intelligence of the beings they created in their experiments. So I'm not somebody who, who regards human beings today as just a slave species. I think we did slave the colonizers in the past. I mean, we've done that to each other on planet Earth, and our ancient narratives said we slave for others in the deep past. But we are far more than that, with far more potential. And one of the things I find exciting about paleo contact is that the implications are, for today, that we can be more than we think we are, that we were engineered with higher cognitive abilities than we generally use. And that's really the elephant that remains in the room once you've taken the red pill and found these other stories of human origins. You know, I was, during one of my interviews recently, you know, I was talking about this topic and they were referring to the extraterrestrials as, you know, being benevolent, you know, and, and sort of caring for the human race. And my question to them was, you know, then why did they make us slaves? And their response really surprised me, helped me fill in the gaps. She said, she, her answer was, they didn't make us slaves. What they did is they, 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 they taught us to work because they wanted to teach us. So all that was being done was them trying to teach us how to, you know, use different elements, basically. We weren't, they weren't enslaving us. It was just like a kid in school. Like when I was in school, it felt like I was a slave. Like I was like being put in prison, you know. <laughs> so maybe it felt that same way to early humans, too. <laughs> well, I do agree with that. Um, I do think some slaving is part of our story. I think um, our ancestors working in the mines, well, I'm not sure what other employment choices we had at that time, but I agree with what your other guest said. All around the world, we hear narratives of visitors coming from the stars and teaching our ancestors. So when we listen to Native American story, I have a Cherokee friend who is telling me, 
their story of visitors coming in the deep past, sitting with their ancestors and teaching them agronomy, teaching them what plants are good for food, uh, which ones you can't eat, which ones are good for medicines, how to construct things, how to do sanitation, how to do hygiene, how to live as a human civilization on the planet's surface. Native American story is willing to give credit to visitors from the stars for mm -hmm. that really fundamental tutelage. If you go to um, the story of Oannes and the Apkalu, which is a Babylonian story that was first written in the Greek language, although we may still have to find the cuneiform texts with the earlier version, but we have the Greek version of the story in which these entities arrive who are not human, and the first impression of the humans uh, who encountered these beings is still recorded. They were amazed by their clothes and by the fabric. And we're trying to work out what this fabric was and surprised that the clothing covered nearly all their bodies. These humans hadn't seen anything like that. Well, once they got over the initial fascination, Oannes and the Apkalu teach all those things I've just mentioned, plus astrology, astronomy, uh, agronomy, mathematics, civil engineering, sanitation, banking, writing, legal systems. And it was a profound tutelage, all the building blocks of civilization credited to visitors from elsewhere. If we go to the Bible, which was my start point, the very first mention of paleo contact is the arrival of entities who look at a planet that's been devastated by some kind of cataclysm. It's flooded and shrouded in darkness, just as it would be after something like a, uh, a comet impact, uh, which uh, many scientists believe is what triggered the Younger Dryas Cold period. And you've got a cataclysm at the start of that period and at the end as all the floodwaters are released. The stories are there of this rehabilitation of the planet. And what's very curious about that is in the Bible, you've got this thing called a ruach that clears water away from higher ground and then begins terraforming the planet. What is a ruach? You look at the word and it's either a wind or it's breath. It often gets translated as spirit and people say, oh, that's the spirit of God. Wind or breath, which is it? Start comparing notes with the source narratives the Sumerian story of beginnings starts with the separation of waters, just like in the Bible, separating salt water from fresh water, which is the first thing you do when you go in to rehabilitate land that's been flooded and devastated by something like a tsunami. You have to get fresh water separated from the salt water. How's it done? It's done through vortices of wind, four winds in the Sumerian stories. Go to the story of the Tagalog, the hawk, in the Filipino narrative, and you've got this hovering hawk clearing land with vortices of wind. Go to the story of Asanabua, which I believe is from the Edo tradition of Nigeria, and you've got the mighty one above the waters, clearing the waters to terraform the land. And I mention all that because what you've got there is a visual memory that's being told with different names, different metaphor, but they're all describing what their ancestors saw. Someone was here after the devastation to see these visitors arrive and begin repairing and rehabilitating the planet. And the visual memory 
echoes in narratives all around the world. Mm -hmm. Do you think, then what happened to these extra, well, actually first, before I go there, do you, do you believe that, um, was it one species of extraterrestrial, or was it multiple species working together, or do you think there was multiple species of extraterrestrials working against each other, maybe fighting <laughs> over some resources here? Yes, well, certainly in the uh, the Hebrew canon, you've got stories of the Elohim, the powerful ones, conflicting with each other, competing for resources and hegemony. There's this strange body of entities referred to in the Bible as the Sky Council uh, and the uh, the wars in the heavens, of course. And it echoes what's told in great detail in the Mesopotamian stories. Were they the same species warring against each other in the same way that the Dutch and the Spanish and the French and the English all competed for the New World? It's possible, but some of the conflicts are, are pretty deep. They have very deep conflicts over human beings and what they should be and how evolved they should be, how intelligent, how many, whether they should be genocided. So there's some pretty deep rifts between these ET demographics. If you look on the Sky Council in the Bible, you've got some entities that are physical and some that are energy-based or archonic beings. So that suggests quite a spectrum. There's a moment that's recalled by ancestral narratives all around the world, a moment of hybridization that appears to have breached some kind of agreement among those demographics. And so in the Sumerian story, you've got the Igigi arriving the watchers of the Book of Enoch, or the Bene Elohim of Genesis 6. And they are doing something that the other Elohim think is really off, mm -hmm. which is coming and abducting human females for hybridization. And the stink that that creates is recorded in narratives all around the world. So I think the hints are there that you are looking at a diversity of demographics, maybe a diversity of species, maybe some very, very similar to us, and some energy-based, maybe there are trans-dimensional entities there as well. When you get to stories of, of terraforming or star-forming, you have to stop and think, what kind of entity is this? But, you know, it was just before Christmas, not the one just gone, but the one previous, we heard from Haim Ashed. He was the brigadier general responsible for Israel's space security program for 27 years. And he said something really startling. I mean, that's a pretty authoritative person you've got stepping forward and saying this. And he said that on the basis of his experience, as Israel's chief of space security, that we are already in contact with ET species who form an intergalactic federation. So there you've got a plurality right then and there. It's just another phrase for Sky Council an intergalactic federation that's chosen not to self-disclose until humanity has a more developed understanding of what space is. Now, this is what he said, and he's one of a number of very senior figures who've been allowed to say such things without condemnation or without the government coming out and distancing themselves from him. And what he's saying is a repeat of what you'll hear in the Bible, the Sumerian, Mesoamerican, Greek, Norse, African, narratives all around the world. This is what our ancestors have been telling us for thousands of years. Why do you think he was allowed to, to tell people that? 
And there's other, I mean, there's been a few, obviously, trickling stories now in the last, just the last few years about this idea that, you know, that contact has already been made. Do you, do you think that there's a reason for it? Do you think that this is some kind of slow trickle down disclosure to get people ready? I do. I think it's a, a policy of soft disclosure, not necessarily to get people ready in the sense that they're wanting to tell us everything, um, because I don't think our governments do want to tell us everything. I think uh, everything we know from our governments is always on a need-to-know basis. I think non-disclosure is the bottom line of how the powers communicate with us. So I'm not sitting there twiddling my thumbs waiting for a policy against it becoming blindingly obvious that we've got company. So there's enough information out there so that when it becomes unavoidable, it, our authorities can say, yes, well, you remember we did mention this. I mean, the Roman Catholic can, Church can say this. Do you remember back in 2009, we did say we'd have contact probably quite soon. And do you remember we said there's no issue? And it's not just Hamish Ed. Uh, who is, if you think about it, one degree removed from an official in a position of power making an official statement. So he's the previous chief of space security. We've heard from Alain Juillet, the former chief of French intelligence. Chris Mellon, the former assistant secretary of defense for mm-hmm. Presidents Clinton and George W. Bush. Who else have we heard from? We heard from Louis Elizondo, the former chief of the Pentagon's unit for investigating UFO crashes. Uh, So it's always just that one degree removed, but that is something quite new. We've never seen people that close to the authoritative position coming out and saying these things and not being, um, uh, not having the government distance themselves or deny. We've had Paul Hellyer, Canada's former Minister of Defence. I mean, go around the world, Vladimir Putin, who actually said these things while he still was uh, Vladimir Putin's Prime Minister. So I think that's quite a shift from what you and I grew up with, which is every time you hear from an authority, it's to ridicule and debunk stories of contact. Now we've got these figures who have been allowed to come forward and speak And I think that is what soft disclosure looks like. Um, It is only one degree removed from your president coming up to the mic and saying, my fellow Americans, I've got something to tell you. So how about the definition of extraterrestrial? Does the definition of extraterrestrial mean specifically physical life forms from another planet or... Does it also include interdimensional beings? I think if we listen to our ancestral narratives, the message is that we're swimming in a soup of company and that some of our company is simply the people from other planets. So very much three, four dimensional entities like you and me, they're physical. The ones who came and colonized us in the past and had us mining for them, uh, they were physical the ones that governed over our ancestors and went to war against each other, they were physical. But there's a huge spectrum of entities described by our ancestors. Some are physical and some are, well, they may be physical, but they communicate telepathically 
Some are energy-based beings called archons that actually parasite off uh, physical, biological entities. Some are interdimensional entities that can not only terraform, they can starform. And so I think we have this huge range, this huge spectrum. And there's a fascinating kind of agnosticism that you hear from shamanic traditions uh, from around the world that have protocols for contact. And there's a funny kind of agnosticism when you delve into some of um, the figures from our own past that got information from non-human sources. And they're not quite sure who or what they're speaking to. John Dee would be an example of that, the guy mm -hmm. who founded Her I'm Majesty's Secret Service for uh, Elizabeth I back in the day. Um, there's an amazing verse in the Bible, in 1 John 4, where the writer there fully expects the early Christians to be in contact with other entities. He calls them spirits, but he doesn't say what they are exactly or where they're from, simply that they're going to be having encounters and getting information. And rather than get to the bottom of who and what they are, he just says, keep your wits about you. Don't believe everything you're told. Weigh it up for yourself. Keep your sovereignty and then decide for yourself what's what. And I find it very interesting that that's his agenda in that verse, which suggests to me he's a little bit agnostic about what these other entities are, but he knows they're real, and he knows that there is some good information that we can get from them. So he doesn't say, oh, don't go near that. Uh, you might get deceived. He just says, keep your wits about you. And I think that's um, that's like a smoking gun that reminds us that back in the day, before all our orthodoxies formed, there was a kaleidoscope of experience that included contact experiences with entities that may be extraterrestrial, may be interdimensional. Hmm. So, do you think that these that the well, let's start with the physical? Do you think that they're physical extraterrestrials? Um, based on planet Earth or nearby that still have regular contact with our governments? I think that's certainly the implication of what Hayamashed is saying. Um, intergalactic Federation in contact with government at a covert level. Yes, I believe that. I think that's been the case for thousands of years. Certainly it's been the case for the last 70 years, and that's what really he's talking about. And it's what... Ed Mitchell talked about when he was campaigning for disclosure uh, before he passed away in 2016. That's what he yeah. was on about, space-faring civilizations. So it's, you know, it's in our physical, familiar world. I think that there are some who were here in the past who may or may not be here in the present. I think there's, there's a lot of ET de demographics that we are in contact with where the... Sumerians sky people are in the picture I'm not quite sure where the biblical Elohim are in the picture I'm not quite sure but they may simply be one or two of a huge number of demographics who are interested in planet earth and having a stakeholding in project earth hmm. one of the other topics that I've covered quite extensively is the idea of um, the interdimensional beings teaching humans how to ascend, you know, basically passing on knowledge, like angelic knowledge, to, to help evolve humanity spiritually. Do you think that's uh, something that's also happening? 
Yes, the person who introduced me to that idea, and it gives light on why 1 John 4 would say, keep those conversations going, was Plato. Two and a half thousand years ago, he wrote these amazing works, among them Phaedo and Timaeus and Critias, which speaks about contact with other dimensional entities who are there to help us have a good human experience and a good experience flowing on from that. I really uh, raised an eyebrow when I read that. I had no idea Plato talked about that as an experience that he slash Socrates had had. Many of the early church fathers were huge fans of Plato and believed what he was talking about. Those ideas of human development are really intertwined with stories of paleo contact. Uh, if you read the Popol Vuh, the hint is there that our ancestors were smarter than we are, had higher cognitive abilities than we do, that they could do things like future view and remote view and have telepathic connection. And the traditions that curated those stories have curated mystical and shamanic modalities for uh, re-engaging those kinds of abilities. So you've got those ideas of ascension there. But there are a lot of movements that have their roots in Plato and really seek, sought to develop and work with what he talked about. And so you've got traditions like the Hesychast tradition in Eastern Orthodox Christianity or the Cathar tradition in Western Christianity that was about fostering our connection with the cosmos on another dimensional level and the idea that we could be far more than we think human beings are, that we can access information from beyond the material realm and that we can transform our material experience through it. You can go there, go to the work of Johannes Trithemius. He wrote a book called The Steganographia, which included protocols for developing remote viewing and remote communication. That was a Benedictine monk who, again, had his roots in Plato, who was thinking through the implications of what was there. Giordano Bruno, who was executed in 1600 for empowering the general public of post-Renaissance Europe with protocols for developing their cognitive powers. You can find so many forbidden narratives and traditions. Stop and ask why in North America the colonizers tried to stop, disrupt, and illegalize ceremonies of initiation. And it touches on the same thing. And that is that there are these traditions that are all about ascension, all about developing our experience of life, developing our consciousness, enabling us to evolve into something more uh, than we think we are. That is like a golden thread you can find on every continent and every cultural tradition but it's, you often have to dig deep to find it because it never quite seems to make it into the school textbooks. It's never quite what's wanted. You know, when universities are told to produce industry-ready human beings, they're not talking about this. And so that's some of what I explore in my new book, Echoes of Eden, which will be out later this year, and why these stories would be suppressed. We'll look at the scars of Eden, and my theory is it's all about how we're managed and governed. Interesting, because that is another huge topic. You know, I mean, one of the purposes of my my podcast is to try to encourage people to experiment 
with their own consciousness and their own abilities. The things that we think are superhuman, they're not superhuman. They're just things that we've been told not to do. Exactly. Exactly. Told not to do. That's right. <laughs> and there's this, this cultural... I mean, you look at the conquest of um, continents and you can see a very violent suppression of these stories. So you can see the, the slaughtering of shamanic leaders in Native America, uh, in Canada, in what's now the USA. <clears throat> you can see the stolen generation story in Australia. But then when you go to other places, um, perhaps India and Africa, look at what the British did there. They didn't go around slaughtering all the, uh, the shamans and the witch doctors. What they did was bring in a narrative of cultural superiority so that you then are ashamed mm -hmm. of your aunt, mother or grandmother who is the witch doctor who has all this other information. Or you're embarrassed to be seen to take um, the folklore or an old wives' tale seriously. And it's just done through this cultural snobbery of don't listen to the locals, don't listen to your grandparents, don't listen to your ancestors, listen to the narrative of the conquerors. So we've deleted and replaced the old narratives uh, with science and Christian orthodoxy. And we then shine. I mean, it's why probably you and I have been brought up to shy away from the witchy woman uh, or the wise woman. You know, they're probably not quite sane, are they? It's sort of the feeling that you grow up with not to listen to the local language, the local folklore, the local narratives. But it's always there that the, the transformative knowledge is retained. When conquering forces go in and become the department, the Ministry of Truth, all the other narratives go underground. And that's why you do have to dig a bit to find them and be willing to listen without prejudice. Hmm. In your new book, I, I, um, I know now, like, you know, a lot of people who experiment with you know, their consciousness and things like remote viewing and ESP and mediumship and Akashic Records. Sometimes you, they can be viewed as um, crazy. And then sometimes you start questioning your own sanity. Like, am I really, do I really, am I really getting this information or am I just insane? Yes, well, that's right. I mean, that's part of that cultural entrainment you know if it's off the school syllabus or if it's considered fringe or heretical by your church then you avoid it until you have an experience that those narratives can't explain and then sometimes that's when people go and seek out the sensitive or the psychic or whoever it is who they know is willing to go to this other place and talk about this strange experience. I mean, some people feel that way about hypnotherapists. <laughs> and uh, when I talk to my friend uh, Barbara Lamb, very often people only go to her when they've had an experience that they know they can't talk to their pastor about uh, or their GP. And they will go and talk to a therapist who is known for being willing to listen to extracurricular experiences and help them to understand what they've experienced. I do personal coaching and virtually everybody who comes to me for personal coaching comes for that reason. They have an experience 
that they feel they can't talk about with anyone else because it falls outside the boundaries of what is considered normal, sane. They want to talk about it, but they don't want to be considered crazy. And so they have to find this, this channel, this person. Now, this is really interesting to me because in the 1990s, U.S. defense was on the receiving end of a large number of reports of close encounters and abduction experiences from military personnel. And when they started stacking these up, their first question was, are these people sane? Are they safe to fly? And so they went to the highest authority they could think of in the area of clinical psychology to do some psych evals on them to work out if they were sane. And the person they found was John Mack, Harvard's uh, head of clinical psychology. And he did um, evaluations on more than 50 people as part of that research and concluded no pathology is indicated. They've had a real experience that merits some serious study. And this was a bit embarrassing, actually, to uh, U.S. Defense and to Harvard to have this information returned to them. But that's my conclusion as well from the people that I speak with. I speak to sane people who've had experiences that they can't quite process. I think we could help each other if we would be willing to listen to each other's experiences without ridicule and without prejudice. Because I don't believe you'd find a family anywhere or a friendship circle anywhere that doesn't have an experience like this in it. If you were to sit down with your friends and say, have you ever experienced anything that you can't explain? Uh, there would be an answer and possibly an answer from everybody sitting in that circle. And I think the more we're willing to listen to those stories, the more a coherent picture will emerge. And it's a picture that says we are not alone in this cosmos or on planet Earth. That is true. I think if you're sitting at a table with 10 different people, when you ask that question, everybody's going to have something that they haven't explained. Now, whether they want to actually mention it in front of that group of 10 people is a whole yeah, other story. It is. Uh, it is, but I think we need to give each other permission to have those conversations. And people like you and me, we can take that risk. Uh, we don't mind putting the question out there. And from time to time, you might get everybody. It only needs one person in that circle to say, well, let me tell you what happened to me. And then that gives permission to somebody else. And then that gives permission to somebody else. And I think if we're willing to broker conversations like that, that's an unstoppable wave of disclosure, far better than sit twiddling our thumbs waiting for an announcement from the President of the United States. Let's hear from each other what we've seen and experienced. How much of a threat do you think it is to governments, to religions, and to even corporate institutions um, of human beings realizing their true ability as far as, um, you know, be, psychic abilities, telepathy, um, able the ability to retrieve information from other dimensions, all of that we're capable of doing. But obviously these these it messes up the power structure on our planet because then we realize that we don't need all these other controls in place. 
Yes. I mean, the Mayan story in the Popol Vuh is that our ancestors did have these high cognitive abilities and they were dialed down. In fact, the story is they were brain damaged. Uh, a vapor was sprayed over human populations to brain damage them to make them more easily managed. Uh, and that's the Mayan way of talking about the relationship between government and human ascension. They want populations who can be managed. So you've got that story from the Mayans, or if you want another version of the story, watch Gladiator, uh, where you've got the story of a Roman emperor who's smart enough to know that if you provide the public with enough entertainment, <laughs> they'll be distracted enough that the powers can get away with anything. And I think that's another sort of meta-narrative to understand how we occupy the planet. Yes, I think, I mean, a couple of years ago, 2020, the Australian government um, made clear again that they wanted the universities to produce industry-ready humans. Not really that interested in education, just so that we've got that workforce that the Popol Vuh describes as avatars willing to work and bring us our food. So, yes, I think human ascension and management of populations by government are sort of forces that move in the opposite direction. You know, I think the powers want human beings who are educated enough to keep all the systems running. They don't need to be smarter than that. And if we can manage that through um, uh, entertainment, then maybe that's a benign way to do it. If we manage it by spraying vapors over human populations, well, that's the way the Mayan uh, governors did it. Um, I think those stories ought to make us um, thoughtful uh, about what we're taking in, how we're being governed, how much we're being distracted, and what's in our environment that might detract from us being as healthy and as powerful as we can be. Uh, I think we can be far more powerful than we can be and live more intelligently on the planet than we currently are. So I'm a fan of human ascension. And I think if we go back to the, the forbidden sources, then we find some of the clues and keys to achieving it. I don't think it is in any way um, an enemy of orderly society to be more intelligent and more conscious. And the Cathar story is a great example of that. Read Echoes of Eden when that comes out later this year. I talk all about the Cathars, why they were gotten rid of, where they got their information from, and the fact that their ascension produced a happy, ordered society. And that's that would be my hope for us. Well, it would be the uh, ideal situation, that is for sure. Um, but I hope that we don't end like the Cathars do, though. No, indeed. <laughs> but I think uh, be before we get there, I think if we can be more intelligent and be more conscious, then we can't be manipulated by a xenophobe or a rabble rouser or a demagogue. Uh, we can't be dumbed down by official statements. We will be thoughtful people who live more intelligently as a society. And I think that's a good goal. We don't have to have that goal handed to us by our governments. We can decide to evolve and ascend in that way as we learn what is available to us from our ancestral sources. I, I mean, obviously that willingness is already out there. Otherwise, you and I would be out of jobs. 
Exactly. And that's what I find really encouraging because I haven't known a time like this where there's such an appetite for the other stories, the other narratives. And I think people all around the world are saying, hmm, I'm no longer convinced or satisfied by the old stories that have guided my life. I think there's far more and I want to find out. And I find that appetite right across the generations. Uh, it's something I've not seen before and I find it very exciting. It's a great time to be doing work like this. It is really interesting because people are more open to it. Um, you know, I, I, got, I was lucky. I grew up in, in an environment that was pretty open to it. Like my mom, she believed in psychic abilities and all that stuff and kind of, you know, I, I don't know if she was keen on my all my experimentation, but, you, you know, but it was there. So it wasn't completely closed off. But for some people, yes. it still is. Um, however, there's a lot more places for people to get the information, to get the stories, to hear things like this podcast, to read things like your books, which puts a huge crack. And it makes a big opening for people to... Um, open up their uh, perspective. Absolutely. Absolutely. The appetite is, is really strong right now. We, on the Fifth Kind TV, we put up um, a video that talks about just a little aspect of what we've talked about today. It's had eight and a half million views. Uh, <laughs> we put up a, a, a four-hour box set uh, summarizing the things we're talking about. It got to a million views in three weeks. That's a lot of people with a strong appetite for this material. And that's why I'm, I'm sticking with this track and drilling down as far as I can and sharing everything I'm learning because I think we are at a time of generational shift uh, across all this great spectrum. And I think the potential for us actually to have an ascension experience where we do become more conscious and more intelligent and live differently as a consequence. I think the potential is enormous. I think not only is the potential enormous, but I think um, right now, I think people like you, me, and, and a lot of other people are sort of acting as a catalyst to kind of begin that change, that transformation. I think that's right. And certainly that's the feedback I get when I, uh, I'm in the comments every day on YouTube, on the Paul Wallace channel and the Fifth Kind TV. That's what people are saying to me. And when people contact me when they've read The Scars of Eden, they'll often say either that this has been a red pill for them or that it's affirmed them in a track they've been on for some time and that they had felt isolated on that track, but more and more are discovering friends on the same journey. And I think the uh, online communities of podcasts like yours, Gary, make it possible for people to discover each other and realize that they're not alone in this journey. They're part of something huge. Absolutely. Um, so when does uh, Echoes of Eden come out? Echoes of Eden is due out on the 1st of May, and it drills down deep into some of these connections with indigenous narratives what were the secrets that were buried along with our ancestors' knowledge of ET contact. And it's the sequel to The Scars of Eden, which is going gangbusters right now and is available at Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and wherever books are sold. You can find the books there, and I love being in communication with my readers. So if you get hold of those books, and the first one, Escaping from Eden, 
and you want to get into conversation with me, please do that. You can do it through YouTube or through my website, which is paulanthonywallace.com. Awesome. Well, what I'll do is I'll put a link to your website and to your books in the notes of this episode. Before, the, before I started, though, I had looked up Echoes of Eden, and it actually said May 1st, 2021, which made it look like it hadn't <laughs> come out oh. yet. Well, worked on, worked on in 2021, but uh, My Echoes of Eden is due for release May the 1st. So in just a couple of weeks, it'll be available for pre-order. Can't wait to read it. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, Thanks for coming on. This was a great interview. You're always awesome. Thanks, Gary. It's been a great pleasure, and I look forward to next time. You got it. Hang on for one second, and I'm just going to play the outro. Listen to you today.